Go ahead and open up to Proverbs chapter 12. And in your bulletin, you'll notice that there's a little insert. I'd ask you to take your insert. It's a Being that it's Proverbs and we're looking at various topics within the book of Proverbs, there's not so much a, a text that we're focusing on and then launching out from that text. It's more like we're hopscotching through the book of Proverbs. But I would like to um, just read from this sheet of paper the first couple Proverbs, and then we'll pray and we'll start looking at the text. Uh, so Proverbs 7.4 says, Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call understanding your intimate friend. Proverbs 17.17 says, A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Proverbs 18.24 says, A man of too many friends comes to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Uh, Father, we do thank you and praise you for your word. Lord, we ask um, that you would guide us now as we work through this topic within Proverbs. Lord, that you would uh, give meaning to the text. Lord, that you would open our hearts, Lord, to help us understand um, what you um, have designed friendships for. Uh, Lord, may we become better friends in our relationships with those that you've blessed us to be in relationships with. We love you, Father. We praise you. And we ask this in Christ's good name. Amen. So as we look at the book of Proverbs, last week we, we started out by the big picture of Proverbs is about wisdom. I selected Proverbs entering into the new year. They kind of take a break from Luke. In February, we're going to come back in Luke chapter 15. We're going to finish off Luke into the new year. But Proverbs is all about wisdom. And as you go through Proverbs, as you read it from front to back, which I encourage you to do, uh, take a proverb of the day. We've inserted it in the bulletin. So you just whatever date it is today, the 8th, you read Proverbs chapter 8. Um, God will begin to give you wisdom through the reading. But the bigger picture of Proverbs, we, we learn, come to see that the, the foundation or the starting point of wisdom is the fear of God. We kind of focused on this last week. And I think that the reason that the fear of God is the starting point is this is the sort of the tether um, to the creator that helps us understand the world around us. So if we have a healthy dose of the fear of God, then how we interact in other relationships, we're going to be, um, the decisions are going to be filtered for pleasing God. And Proverbs, this whole topical thing is very difficult for me. I don't enjoy this sort of thing. I'd rather just, what's the story say? Let's look at the story. What's it mean? How do we apply it? This is sort of, you got to piece it together. And if we start with the starting point of, of the fear of the Lord, that that's the foundation of the wisdom. Why is that such a big deal? And I think it's because it's God's influence on us will help us to navigate other circumstances. And the next most, I think, intimate thing for us to do is we now, not intimate, but, but as our relationships, our friendships with people, they influence how we think and how we act and decisions that we make uh, for good or for bad. Friendship is a huge thing. We, we crave it, we long it, we were designed to be in friendship with people. And our relationships can help us or hurt us. There's a saying in Spanish, Spain Spanish, might just to clarify, I don't know if it's in other Spanish-speaking cultures, but in Spain there's a saying, I thought I would try to say it in Spanish, but then, you know, about a couple hours into rehearsing, I decided it wasn't necessary. But the saying in Spanish says, tell me who you walk with and I'll tell you who you are. And, and the point is, this sort of Spanish proverb says, just give me a lineup of all your friends. I don't want to know anything about you, but if you show me who all of your friends are, I'll be able to tell you who you are as a person. And 
There's power in that. We're influenced by others. There's a six year or an almost six year old kid in my house. She's five. And hanging out in that demographic, I've been reminded of something from my childhood is the whole, will you be my best friend? This is a powerful statement with little kids. The amount of things that somebody in that age range from, I don't know, three to maybe 18 or 20, like if you can have the title of I'm your best friend, people will do great things of stupidness and folly in order to gain that title. And and they, there's this longing that's from an early age, like I want to be your closest friend. And as, as adults, we sort of laugh, but one of the top selling books, there's 15 million copies, which isn't in the grand book selling scheme is not that many, but it's a significant amount that was published in 1936. And the book is How to Make Friends and Influence People. My dad loved this book. I mean, it was written two years after he was born, and it had a great impact on him growing up. And the question is, why have so many questions, oh, so many copies of this book sold? It's because people long to be in relationships and desire to have these friendships. And I think because of our sinful nature, we sort of the bury, we, we break something down and friendships are hard to come by. And so everybody's longing and to gain friendships. And marketing is based around friendships. So much, we think of the old TV show, Cheers. When Norm would walk in, this is everybody's going to be blank serve. But they shout something. They say, Norm. And, and the, the opening song, you know, place where everybody knows your name, this idea of you can go to this place and you have deep quality friendships. Starbucks played off of this. Starbucks made their money by creating an environment where people could go drink coffee, hang out, build relationships, spend time with another, one another. Facebook. This is, this is the Facebook where, you, you know, the, the quality of friendship is sort of diminishing because there's not true friendship. But, but the idea of people that are longing to be connected with other people. So now through Facebook's exploded, connecting sort of loose relationships and people can kind of be in relationship because people are longing for this. And so the issue is what does Proverbs say about friendship? In Proverbs twelve twenty six, it begins to tell us that selecting of a friend is important that the righteous person should be very careful in how they choose. The New American Standard says this, the righteous is a guide to his neighbor, but the way of the wicked leads him astray. Well, first off, as we look at Proverbs, interpreting the Hebrew text, there's, the language allows for a variety of different sort of translations or how to say it, um, proverbial statements just in themselves. How do you convey this thought? And so there's some variety in the first part of this verse, um, as you go through Proverbs, it's even hard trying to discover, well, what, you can't just sort of look up friend and get all the hits, because the, the Hebrew word for friend is rea, and it's translated in the English in a number of different ways. It can be neighbor. In this case, it's translated neighbor in the New American Standard. It can be friend. It can be companion. It can also be like fellow. So there's a bunch of different ways of describing friendship. In the Old Testament. Now, the NIV takes 1226 and it says the righteous choose their friends carefully. The Net Bible says the righteous person is cautious in his friendship. The New King James says the righteous should choose his friends carefully. And so the first part here is kind of the idea of listen, if you want to be righteous, if you want to be wise in how you're living your life, you should 
carefully select who you're friends with, like friends at that deepest level, friends that you're very close to, that they have an influence on you. I served as a Navy SEAL for 12 years, a pretty high security clearance. When I got out, I, somebody said, hey, you should volunteer for the sheriff's department. They need chaplains and you'd be a good fit. Like, oh, this is great. I'll just be, it'll be an easy deal. And I met with the head chaplain. He said, okay, you got to, they've really tightened down the screws and they put you through the ringer. I'm like, really? I can show my security clearance, my history. I, I have honorable discharge. It doesn't matter. They take you down in this gray, sterile room, blast on the air conditioning and put you through a voice stress. Analy- they ask you a bunch of questions. And it's uncomfortable, and I have a guilty conscience. So I'm like spilling my guts to them. And they're like, well, that's not illegal. I'm like, yeah, but God wasn't happy with me. That was a bad year. I did all of this stuff. And I'm like, there's no way I passed. Sure enough, the lady came back and said, yeah, you failed on a certain section. I need to ask you some more questions. Like, can I just rip this thing off and get out of here? I don't, this isn't fun. And I eventually passed. I walked out of there to the head chaplain, and I'm like, what is the deal with this? Like, I got a 12 years of good conduct with the Navy. I've got a security clearance. I've got honorable. Dis- I'm a volunteer position. And like, listen, they're very particular about who they let volunteer because they realize that the interaction with people on their staff, there's great influence. So then a couple years later, I was invited to go work with the Escondido Police Department. I think, well, now I have my background as a SEAL. I've been all through, I have my little sheriff ID card, so I should be able to just slap it to the Escondido Police Department and get waved through. Like, no, sir, we need to do a lie detector test, background investigation. I'm like, you guys are killing me. I hate these things. And as I'm going through this, I stumbled this week across a Greek philosopher who I can't say his name. It's Antisthenes. And his big question in life as he pondered, He thought it was hilarious that human beings would go to the market and take the thing that they're going to buy. They'd look it over for defects, for cracks, for any sort of deficiency. And this thing that they were only going to spend a few dollars on, they were super critical of whether they'd buy it or not buy it. And he thought it was funny that that humans would do this with stuff they buy. But when it came to their friends, they gave no thought or consideration to the friends that they hung out with. In practical terms, we did a rummage sale here a few months ago. We said, give us your junk, your good junk. We're going to sell it. I don't do these things. I don't go to rummage sales. And the culture of rummage sales, it cracked me up. It was like warfare out here. People were showing up early. And as we were looking, Kelly and I, we were the salespeople because we wanted stuff to move. I wanted stuff to move because I knew that the next day, if it was still here, I was stuck with it, and I didn't want to make a big run to the dump. Now, there are other people who are working this stuff. They were people who paid top dollar for all the stuff, so they wanted to recoup all their money. And so Kelly and I are kind of walking around going, hey, when it comes time, don't negotiate with anybody. Just come to us. We'll give you a good deal. And I like stuff, junk. Guys looking at me, he's like, I don't know. Like, like, I'll give it to you for a quarter. I don't know. It's quarter. I'm like, do you keep going? I'll pay you to take it away. The guy's like, I don't know. He sets it down, leaves, comes back at the later end of the day, and we offloaded all this stuff on him. But it's just hilarious. Like, how we, like, what we're spending 30 cents for, we'll check it out. But when it comes to friends, we just sort of, our friends are people, like, how do we get our friends? They're just kind of people who we bumped, you know, our cross paths, and we kind of started hanging out. And we should really 
be careful according to the scripture and and who we select as friends. And the reason that we do this is the second half of that proverb. It says, but the way of the wicked leads them astray. So the righteous man, the person who says, I want to live my life for the Lord. I understand that the influences in my life, people are powerful and they'll guide my path. And so if there's a wicked person or a person that's not on the same trajectory in life as I am, I realize that they can have an influence in me for the negative. And so I have to be very careful. I know that early in my Christian life, I struggled. I had friends that were like my dear, dear friends. But the direction that their life was heading was not in the same direction. I referred to them as my kryptonite. I would do well walking with the Lord. Then I'd see them, and then it was, you know, a couple hundred dollars later in a hangover. And what just happened? How did that, how did I fall so hard? And then I started to distance myself. I realized I had to keep my distance. Today, I'm still friends with those guys because I'm stronger in my relationship. So if we have to choose carefully, the question is, how, what does a good friend look like? And in all of these selections of, well, what does a good friend look like? The question really comes back to us. It's better for us to look at the next. If we want to select good friends and have friends that are good influences, we really need to ask ourselves through Proverbs, how do we become the friends and the people that God wants us to be? I think the first part we see is that we want to be friendly, reliable, and loyal. So this Proverbs 18.24, the first, this, it can be translated a couple different ways, and so you get a couple different, depending on how you, you lean with it, you can come up with a couple of varieties. So I just choose them all because they all are really good points. So Proverbs 18.24 says that a man of many friends comes to ruin, but there is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. There's that old saying, right? Blood is thicker than water. And the meaning behind that phrase is like, well, you can't trust people that you're not related to. When push comes to shove, only those people that have the same DNA as you are going to be your friend in the end. Well, the Bible says that's not necessarily true. There are friends that, are, that stick closer than friends. The NIV translates this verse like this. It says, the one who has unreliable friends soon comes to ruin. The net translation says, a, a person who has friends may be harmed by them. A man who has friends must himself be friendly. There are, quote-unquote, friends who destroy each other. So those are a variety of different translations. And the bulk of it, the first part that I get from this is that, hey, if you want to have friends, you have to be friendly. Like, kind of be the sort of friend that you want to be. And this seems like common sense, which isn't common anymore. Carnegie, the author of Making Friends and Influencing People, that book, he said that you could make more friends in two months by seeking the, what other pe- like learning about other people. So in two months, you can learn more about, you can gain more friends. I should just read it. You can make more friends in two months by becoming, an, by becoming interested in other people than you can make in two years trying to get people interested in you, which is really true. My dad read this book. My dad was raised during the Depression, born in 1934, by two parents that were both only children. He himself was an only child. And my grandpa was like a, like a very high-end mathematician. So his, in the most loving way, he had very little people skills. So my dad felt like he just felt like he was handicapped when it came to maintaining relationships with people. So he read this book. And he's like, I just love it. The book said, hey, just go out. When you're in a conversation with people, just ask them questions about themselves. 
And he said, you know what? You can spend a three-hour meeting with somebody and just ask questions about themselves. They'll talk about themselves for the whole three hours. And when you leave the meeting, after not saying a word about yourself, that person's walking around, walking away from me and going, you know what? That guy's a great guy. He, I really like him. But you didn't say a thing about yourself. They talked about themselves and they walk away thinking, man, that's a great person. And that's sort of the... The, the premise. Now, I don't think the point is that we're, we're to go around for the sake of this, um, you know, trying to trick people into you're a great person. But the idea is that if you're just friendly, if you love people and you extend yourself and you care about them more than yourselves, you're going to surround yourself with great friends. There's another proverb, Proverb 27:10, the last half, and it says, better is a neighbor who is near than a brother who is far away. This one has been my theme verse all week. I've been kind of, my whole week feels like it's been out of whack. The culprit is Dan Kidder, who is in the front row. Saturday afternoon, I'm at church. I get a text message. Hey, Gunnar, Kelly's going to stay up in Seattle for an extra week. I'm flying into Ontario tomorrow. I'll arrive at 7 p.m. Can you come pick me up? Sure, man, no problem. I'd be happy to pick you up at 7. It's after the Chargers game. I'll be able to watch the game. I'll be able to get up there. No problem. So just about the end of the Chargers game, I get a text message. I've been on the tarmac for two hours, and I don't know if I'm going to make my flight in San Francisco. Okay, no problem. I'll be there, whatever. It'll all work out. He's like, thanks, man, because that's better than walking home from Ontario. And he's got a brother that's far away. This is the funny thing. I'm a neighbor that's close by. He has a father that's a brother that's far away. Well, long story short, I see he's not going to make his connection. Doing forensic, forensic studies on United Airlines, I see that the only next flight coming in is at midnight. I'm like, this is just great. He's got me pigeonholed. I'm preaching on friendship next Sunday, and he wants me to pick him up from Ontario at 12 in, you know, 12 in the middle of the night. So I drive up there, we pick him up, and it's always, when you're the recipient, it always feels horrible, but it was really not a big deal. And I had no problem picking up Dan because Dan's a great guy, and I know he would do the same thing for me, right? He's on the record. <laughs> but no, no, he, he really is a loving guy. They just oh, they opened up their home. They were friendly to the church. Like, they did all this stuff. Like, anybody who knows them knows that they're just, like, a sweet family. And so it was no problem for me to, like, do that for him. And as we're friendly, as we demonstrate the sort of friendship that we want with others, we're certain to get friends. Proverbs 22.11 says this. He who loves purity of heart and whose speech is gracious, the king is his friend. So, so Solomon's saying, like, if you're just gracious in how you speak about people and to people, if in your heart is purity, your friend is going to be the king, meaning that if you're loving and you invest your life this way in others, the quality of friends that you have is going to be very high. When I see that verse, I think of my father-in-law. A few years ago, I have no musical talent at all, but the first song I write is going to be a country song. I have the title of it and I have the gist of it, but I've got to get it all put together. It's going to go something along the lines of, I lost my transmission in Bakersfield. We were heading to San Luis Obispo. We'd come down the grapevine. I heard a little clunk. Ah, that's funny. Let's just turn up the radio. Because that's, that's my mechanical problem solving. Turn up the radio. Then a few hundred yards later, it felt like I hit the brakes and came to a screeching stop off to the shoulder. And there I was just south of Bakersfield. I call up AAA. 
the tow truck driver comes and he's like, oh, I got a great guy. It's a couple, it's, it's Jim or Tom or whatever. I forget his name. There's three old guys. He's like, they're great. I'm thinking, oh man, his truck says AAA. He's got to be good. So they drop us off at this place and these three old, I mean, they were in, they're probably three guys about in mid eighties. And it was obvious that their, their auto shop was more of a hobby horse for them. They were AAA rated, but it was more like this is the way they tinker away their time. And they're like trying to drive the car around. I'm like, this is so, this isn't good. It was actually the best transmission deal because like Bob found a deal on a transmission. It was like, I got an oil change and a new transmission for under a thousand bucks. It was a good deal. But I'm sitting there going, now how are we going to finish the rest of our journey to San Luis Obispo? So we call over to Anna's grandpa's house. And he's like, just get a rental car. You're on your own. Suck it up. You're a big boy. Well, my father-in-law, thankfully, who had driven just up from San Diego to San Luis Obispo, says, no problem, I'll come pick you up. I'm like, John, this is like a three-hour that you're talking about going from the coast to the Central Valley. He's like, yeah, no problem. And he came and picked us up, drove us back, and then we went all the way back to San Diego with him. And his lifestyle, of he just sacrifices for other people. If you know John, he's this way with everybody. And he's a guy that will never be in need of anything because he has so many friends that that will treat him how he's treated them over the years. The second point is that a friend loves at all times. That there's this consistency of how a person treats another person. If you have a friend that loves you one day, and then the next day they're talking poorly to you, being abusive towards you, or whatever, there's no consistency. That's not a friend. A friend is somebody who's stable and consistent in how they love you. Proverbs 17, 17 says, A friend loves at all times... But a brother is born for adversity. So here's this sort of Solomon constantly uses the play like brother seems like it should be the closest of all relationships. Throughout scripture, we see the tension and turmoil between brothers when there shouldn't be this. And he says that a, a friend will love at all times when a brother is born for adversity. Well, what's love? In our culture, I'll talk about an in and out double double that I love this burger, and then I'll go home and say, oh, I love you, honey kind of equating a cheeseburger and my wife at that same emotional level, which she does like in and out So she's like, yeah, that's a close call right now. <laughs> you take a pregnant girl and food and, you know, compare that. It's like, I don't know. No offense. I'll probably be in trouble later today. Sorry, everybody. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But so the whole, that we just toss around this, this word love. And so what is love? There's a passage of scripture, you guys all see the notes back here, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's read at almost every wedding. When I do weddings, I refuse to like read this unless they ask for it, because it just is like, and it would, it, this has nothing to do with marriage. Like the context of this whole setting is in the, you know, there's arguing, Corinth is a mess. Paul writes, he's explaining the spiritual gifts and the diversity. In the midst of this conversation of spiritual gifts, he talks about in our differences, we need love. And so he explains love. He says, love is patience. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked, does not take into account wrongs suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never fails. It's this beautiful picture of what love is. So when, this, when, the, when Solomon writes, a friend loves at all times, this is what love is. 
I'm sure you guys have heard the pastor in the wedding. The next step after reading this, he says, now you so-and-so, just put your name in there for love, which I kind of like that idea because it's true. You can go through and say, Gunner is patient, Gunner is kind, Gunner is not jealous, and so on. But suddenly when you do that, if I'm honest with myself, it's like, I don't, I try to be patient, I try to be kind, I try not to be jealous, but it kind of sets the bar for what love is. And Proverbs tells me that if I want to be a friend, I need to love at all times. And that's a high standard to hold myself to in friendship. And then the next point that we see in Proverbs about friendship really only comes if all of the other points are in line. If you have a friend that's, that's friendly towards you, is consistent with you, loves you at all times, really values your relationship, well, the other thing that's beneficial in friendships that can be very difficult and can be, it can be very bad if handled not right, if it doesn't fall under the umbrella of love, is that friendship sharpens the character of those who are involved in the relationship. That's a cute little baby. It's like just the pathetic cry, like two, like two days old, you know, or however. Um, so if you go to Proverbs chapter 27, verse 5, we start seeing some of these, these verses that talk about the benefits of friendship that can be difficult but beneficial. Proverbs 27, verse 5 says, Better is open rebuke than love concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Like, that doesn't seem to like, wait, friendship, why would a friend hurt me? Like, why? A friend should be loving and kind. An enemy should be striking wounds. But the person who's, you know, kind of kissing up to you, that saying that we have, that it's a facade, it's, there's no depth there. Solomon says it's better for a friend to give you a wound than for an enemy for these kisses. He continues in verse 9, he says, Oil and perfume make the heart glad, so a man's counsel is sweet to his friend. Verse 17, iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. So here's this picture of friendship. A true friend is one that's willing to confront you in the midst of your being off base, or that you're wrong, or you're in sin. And there, if you've been there, there's nothing worse as a friend than having to confront a friend. That's wrong. I've had to do it. I dread it. I don't like it. There are few. There, I only have a handful of friends that I've that I've done that with, and it's gone. Like I mean, it's gone well, but that you really experience the love that comes out of that sort of thing. When I took Greek in seminary, the teacher Thomas Rom, he he entered seminary at like fifty, and then he he was he he became a Christian later in life. But now he's like a passionate Greek teacher, and I did the sort of. Um, you know, when it comes to the philosophy of taking the Band-Aid off slowly or fast, I'm all about taking off fast. So I had the option of, okay, you can take two years of Greek over the course of two years, or you can do two years of Greek in three months over the course of a summer, where every day is a week. Sign me up for number two. <laughs> and so in that course, I learned a lot of Greek, but the amount of time face-to-face with this man was every single day we spent a lot of time, our relationship developed and one of the most powerful things he said to, to me or the class of like four of us, he said when he was 45 years old, he learned the greatest lesson that he ever learned in his life. Somebody had confronted him on something where he was wrong. And he said, up to my, I was 45, every time before that in my life when somebody confronted me, he's like, I got violently angry and wanted to just push back on them and I would get lethal with my words about how wrong they were. But suddenly when I was 45, 
the person that confronted me, as he was confronting me, it dawned on him that this person that was confronting him in love was the best friend he had in the whole world because he cared so much about him. He realized the agony that this person went up to, like leading up to this point of confrontation. And then he said, man, as he's confronting me, as he's challenging me, as he's cutting me, giving me this wound, I realized that this is the best favor that anybody could do to me because if I take his advice, I could never struggle in this area again. And it was just powerful. The whole how you take somebody... Because nobody likes being confronted when somebody says you're wrong about something. But if it comes from a friend that you know is grounded in love, that you have time with them. And so when their words come out that are painful, it's a whole lot easier to realize, you know what, what they're saying, there's some truth here. And Solomon said, if you and your friendship, when words from a friend that hurt, think it's the best thing you can have, better than the kiss or the praise of people who are your enemies. One of the final sections I want to look at is what's this one a surefire way to destroy a relationship? Proverbs talks a lot. There's friendship, and then there's like, okay, there's ways that you can just destroy relationships. In fact, next week we're going to totally focus on this next point, so I'm going to kind of fly over it. Proverbs 16, verse 27 says, A worthless man digs up evil, while his words are like scorching fire. A perverse man spreads strife. A slanderer separates intimate friends. So this is in total contrast to that one earlier about if you're gracious of speech, the king will be your friend. This is the person who is essentially like the Inquirer magazine or the Star or whatever those gossip magazines are. The person who finds something out and they keep digging it up and then talking, backbiting, stabbing the person in the back with their language. Like if you're a friend... To gossip about another friend, it's just uncalled for. You'll destroy that relationship. We're going to spend all next week on language. It's hard to preach on because it's convicting. Because we get caught up in talking. And and I would encourage you that if you find yourself in a situation either where you're talking about somebody and you realize it, just stop. Apologize. Say, I'm sorry for doing that. Or if somebody's talking to you, you can stop that conversation. Because I guarantee you, if that person is talking to you about somebody else, likely they're talking about you to other people. In Anna's family, there was, a little, there was a saying when she was a kid that her mom enforced that I really like, that I try to apply to myself. And as they were speaking, the policy was, before you say something, ask yourself, is it kind, true, and necessary? And if it doesn't fit all three of those, then don't let it leave your mouth. Because words are dangerous. What I really want to do, maybe I'll do it next week, but I kind of feel like I'm letting the cat out of the bag so it will have less effect. So mentally, imagine me having a brand new tube of toothpaste and a thing of Tupperware, and I just squirt all of the toothpaste out in the Tupperware. Is there anybody in this room that could get all of that toothpaste back in the tube? Nobody can. And our words are like that. When you say something about somebody, you, it's hard to take it back. You can't suck it back into the tube. So we need to be very careful with the words that we say. And as we look at people who are like talking, like what else does Proverbs say? Like, should we avoid certain people? Proverbs 22, verse 24 through 25 says this. It says, do not associate with a man given to anger or go with a hot-tempered man or you will learn his ways and find a snare for yourself. Solomon makes it clear, hey, there's a hot-tempered person. Don't associate. Keep distance in that relationship. 
Don't get close to that relationship because the closer you are, they'll contaminate you and you'll become like them, the power of influence. I'm fascinated by like prison stories. Like I love, like when I have the opportunity of going to prison, not as an inmate, but for ministry, talking to people in prison, watching like the Discovery Channel. Like I'm fascinated by the stories of people in prison. And often doing ride-alongs and stuff when somebody's in the back seat or getting them to the holding area, just like in the lulls, starting talking to pick their brains. Like, hey, what's your story? Like, where'd you come from? What's going on? And it's remarkable, remarkable to me the amount of people there that it's like largely by the influence of people that they grew up with, the culture that they were around it, that it's all they know. That the friendships for bad are so dangerous. And the Bible says, keep your distance. One of the main rules in lifeguarding is don't put your own life at risk when you go to save somebody. This was one of my favorite things as a SEAL instructor. We had life-saving class. I hated it as a student. As a student, I failed it the first time, had to go through Hell Week, and I retested. And I, but it was, it's subjective. It's on the instructor. You can fail a student for just kind of seeing how to handle it sort of thing. Um, and we teach them... Well, we, we kind of teach them why you want to keep distance with a drowning victim. We kind of put them through the drowning experience in a bad case scenario. And so for the rest of their lives, when they go to, like, rescue somebody, they'll kind of have this moment in their lives. But when I was an instructor, there was a couple kids, there was a season that they got hurt, and then they started coming to church, and a couple of them gave their lives to Christ, and they ultimately were baptized and I had the honor of baptizing the one kid who had, he had graduated, but then all of his friends were still in training, and they were just like kind of classing up again. We had a baptism at the bay, and the one guy who had graduated said, hey, when this is all done to all of his other soon-to-be SEAL buddies, let's get Gunner, and let's just chase him down, and we're going to throw him into the bay. I didn't see all of this coming. I was heading back to the, like, the, chain, the bathroom at Mission Bay, and all of a sudden, I saw all of them coming, and it was like there was nothing I could do. I mean, it was like, I'm done. They got me, and they threw me in the water, and they were all laughing. And I looked at them, and I'm like, well, I'll see you Monday morning. And apparently, Anna said, yeah, there were a number of them that wanted nothing to do with it because they knew that life-saving was coming up. And it was so fun when they came. You know, they know they're supposed to keep the distance. And of the five rescues, one of them is you're treading water they have to turn their backs to you and start easing up to you. And at any point, you can basically assault them. And then you say, get closer, and you start doing the boo, boo. And they're flinching, trying to get to the move. And I was able to kind of get some payback. But from this, you learn you keep your distance, or you yourself will drown. 90% of drownings, I think, don't, don't quote me on that statistic, but it's a high percentage. Don's already going to Wikipedia and give me the actual stats, which I'm interested to see. But a huge percentage of drowning victims are people who are trying to rescue somebody that was drowning. And when we look at this proverb, we see that, hey, listen, those people that have anger problems, he says keep your distance. Don't associate with them because you'll become like them. If you'll turn with me to John chapter 15, and we're we're going to wrap this up. The ultimate friend is Jesus. In John chapter 15, verse 12, it's the Lord's Supper. Jesus, from this story, they would leave. They'd go to the Garden of Gethsemane. He'd be arrested. He'd be betrayed by Judas. And ultimately, within that 24 hours, he would be on the cross dying. 
for our sins. And one of the last things that Jesus tells his disciples is in verse 12. He says, this is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has none has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Jesus is saying, listen, I'm about to go and I'm going to give my life. My love for you is sacrificial. And this is what love is. He goes on to say, verse 14, notice he says, you are my friends. If you do what I command you, no longer do I call you slaves for the slave does not know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends for all things that I've heard from my father. I've made known to you. And he goes on with his teaching. Last week, we learned that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And here Jesus starts modeling friendship. And as we seek wisdom and we realize that the fear of the Lord, the first part is understanding, like, listen, our sin separates us from God. Our sin deserves wrath, punishment. And God stood in our place and took that punishment so that we could call him friend. And Jesus says, hey, listen, you want to learn how to be a friend? The starting point is with me. Be the Lord's friend. Go to him. Walk with him. May he be the main influence in your life. And, and in conclusion, there's, there's two basic questions. As you've trusted in Christ as Savior and you've become God's friend, that enables us to be friends with others. And some of the hard questions I had to ask early in my Christian life and constantly through our, my, my walk with the Lord is the question is, how are your friends helping you in your relationship with God? Like This isn't something to ask now but it's something, or to answer now, but something to ponder. Like the friends, how are they influencing you? And I knew that I had friends that they really hurt my walk with the Lord. And I had a distance. I had, to, I had to keep a distance because I wanted to be walking with the Lord strongly. And then finally, the question is, how are you doing as a friend? Like, how do you treat people? I would look over this, that insert, you know, with a number of Proverbs in the New American Standard that deal specifically with friends. But to like read through, to pray through that, Lord, I want to be a good friend. I want to be a friend that honors you. I want to bring, be a friend that, that brings you glory. How can I improve being a friend? Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. Um, Lord, we thank you for the book of Proverbs. And Lord, as, as I read this book, Lord, I see that the starting point is um, having fear of you, Lord, to be in reverence of you, to stand in awe of you. And Lord, I pray that you would help each of us to keep you at the center of our lives that our relationship with you um, would be good. Lord, we thank you that Christ made that possible. And Lord, as we live our lives, Lord, I just pray that you would help us to, to examine our friendships, Lord, those that are closest to us, those that influence us, Lord. I pray that you would give us wisdom to see um, the influence that people are having on us. Lord, we pray that you would surround us with friends that help us, Lord, to walk with you. And Lord, as we examine um, our friendships, Lord, we ask that you would help us to see how we are doing as a friend. Father, I want to be, um, Lord, I just want to be a good friend. Lord, one that's consistent, one that's reliable, one that's able to love always. And my flesh gets in the way. And so, Lord, I just ask that you would help me in this area. Father, may we grow in wisdom this year. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.